session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delacqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Uh, to start the show today, um, it's hard not to start with the horrific news of this school shooting that happened yesterday in Texas, uh, where 19 children and two adults, last time I checked, were killed. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know exactly even what I was going to say today about it, but I did want to share some thoughts um, because I was so heartbroken um, by the news and uh, sadly it's not something uncommon in our country even I reflected um, doing the show over eight years I mean there's so many shootings that don't even make the news or don't make national news Uh, but I've had to report on many national shootings or shootings that became national news and it's it's heartbreaking to think that that's something that happens that frequently that uh, regularly it's it's talked about and um that you know you've maybe seen yourself now there's some pictures of the the children the victims who were killed and that's it's hard to to look at but i i do think we should look at that and look at them and not avoid uh facing this ugly reality which is what's happened this tragedy and um, one thing I've tried to make a note of is to not say the name of the shooters in any of the incidents. Unfortunately, that can contribute to the sense that there's some level of getting notoriety. Even if you're infamous, at least you're talked about. And I think that's something that we have to be mindful of when we report. I think when news organizations want to report the news, uh, understandably, there's a sense of sharing the information and of course the person's name who committed the act is uh, one considered a big piece of information but i think we have to also think of what's the purpose or intent or result of sharing the information that we share and i think that um sharing their name and photo is not something that's that's helpful i think we should study these incidents to try to understand them even better to be part of the process of preventing them so law enforcement and experts who can have some kind of a more uh, uh, more of an impact on things that might happen in that regard should definitely be looking at it and looking into it in depth but not in the sense of spreading the name and spreading the word of this person or the image of that person Uh, but i've read accounts uh, maybe you have as well of family members who either lost um, a a mother i think one of them i saw i think was the daughter of one of the adults that was killed in a and of parents who lost their children. And it's just the, I've said it many times as I've looked at life and we think of what's the most painful relational experience we can have. And I've always thought that losing a child is that. 
nothing more painful that we can have in a sense of a relational trauma or damage to experience. And so we know 19 families experienced that um, yesterday, and it's just incredibly heartbreaking. And even considering how parents learn um, their child has been killed, I remember the Sandy Hook shooting, this image, or really it was a description, but it stayed as an, a type of image in my brain, burned and etched in such a painful way that parents would go to, I think it was the fire station or wherever they were meeting to be reunited with their children. And just just imagine the parents, of course, I'm sure every one of them so panicked and worried uh, of their child's safety and their being reunited, embracing, and slowly the, the families start dwindling away. And at the end, the parents who were left then learned that that meant their child had died. And that's just a harrowing, um, I mean, unthinkable type of an experience, just imagining that, of course, this type of news, there's no way, there's a good way or a way that's not going to be devastating, but just that image of parents seeing children reunited with other parents and just waiting and looking and hoping and then eventually um, just that truth settling in that their child did not make it. It's just uh, unbelievable. And so we I don't just say this news to or talk about this to be depressing or sad, but it is a reality. And if we are going to be connected to this world connected to other people, we have to accept being saddened, outraged, feeling all sorts of emotions that don't feel good because of that. So if you want to feel disconnected from yourself and others, you you can do that. But if we want to be in some way engaged as a citizen, as a individual, as a family member, you will be affected by the things. And I think we need to, to allow that to happen, to allow ourselves to feel the pain, the real pain of, of what we feel related to what's going on. And of course, there's the, you know, me talking about it now, and then also things like thoughts and prayers, which has become this cliche statement that people make, um, that we don't want it to be just thoughts and prayers. We want some kind of action to be taken, that thoughts and prayers is something you say or do when you can't do anything about something. Someone gets a screening for cancer, you can say thoughts and prayers for them that you hope, you know, it's it's negative and it goes well and all that stuff. But when you're the doctor, you don't just say thoughts and prayers. You take action to help the patient in whatever way that you can. And so as citizens and then also our politicians, we expect more than just thoughts and prayers. And any issue like this is going to be complex and include many different factors and facets, but one that cannot be ignored is firearms and, and guns in this country, in the United States, and that there's a reason why we have such a high number of fatalities based on guns and gun violence. It's because we have so many guns. And so that issue itself is complex of how do you deal with something that's so part of the culture and so um, so many guns are in the United States. But it's definitely something we have to go towards. And just seeing that no action gets taken, Sandy Hook was almost 10 years ago, and really no 
sensible or tangible laws happen or changes in the laws when it comes to gun rights have been made. And even that word rights, um, it's one of those things that I think, of course, it's very valuable when you consider countries and periods of history where people did not have rights or many rights and, and we want to move towards that. But I think in this country, it's not just that it's a free country, it's a me country that people think that they should be able to do whatever they want whenever they want and no one can limit that in any type of way. But when we live with others, even in a home, and let alone in communities in the country, you can't just do what you want all the time. There's always going to be this balance of your freedom and then other people's freedoms and, and safeties and all these other um, issues that come into play. So the sense that nothing should be limited or that even any right is, there's no right that we have that's completely unlimited, even the freedom of speech, which is the First Amendment or included in the First Amendment. It's not you can say anything, anytime, anywhere, all the time, and no one can say anything about it. That's not true. There are limits to that. But somehow the sense that anything that affects gun ownership or the type of guns is somehow an affront to people's rights uh, is really baffling to me and, and heartbreaking. And um, we know that money plays a big part in this, things like the NRA, and they're wanting to make sure guns are being sold at high numbers. Um, and the gun lobbies, that's a big part of what makes action not taken because we've seen that the majority of Americans want changes to happen when it comes to uh, gun rights and laws. But changes don't happen because, well, if you're getting paid not to have anything happen, you're going to do a good job of slowing things down. And that's what we're seeing happening. And it's just disgusting to see that happening, um, that no action is taken, that the type of weapons people can buy, an 18-year-old can buy a military weapon, essentially, um, is not something that should be acceptable at all. It should not be something that uh, we can accept. And even the fact that those kinds of weapons are, are out there. As a psychologist, I very firmly believe in the good of people and have hope for, for people and feel that we tend to be more good than bad. Um, but I also know that we are irrational or whatever you want to label, however you want to label that, that we make bad decisions, bad choices that we do things that hurt ourselves and others because we have so many different feelings and drives and needs that make us act in ways that are even not even our own self-interest, let alone that could be harmful in ways to others that we could later regret. And so giving people a capacity of harm, I think, is itself a problem. Um, you know, and I know it's going to some extreme, but wh why not give people even bigger weapons if we feel like they have the right to be armed? Um, why not give everyone missiles and, and bombs and other things if we think it's just about being uh, armed? Self-protection itself, um, I was looking at some statistics, it doesn't seem that firearms tend to have much of an effect there overall. But I, I don't want to speak in too much detail about that because I'd have to research it more to be able to speak on it more confidently about the specific statistics on that. But nonetheless, the necessity for certain types of weaponry, I think, is just unjustifiable. And because I think of humans as overall being good, but still making mistakes, doing things that can harm them, um, I think we want to limit the capacity of harm that people can have. We even know things like suicide is more likely to happen if there's a firearm in the home. Because when we 
want to take some kind of action in a moment, the easier it is to take that action, um, the more likely it is that it happens. It's not just this sense of people will do it no matter what. Uh, on Monday's show, I was talking about suicide specifically. And um, if there was some way that someone could push a button easily and take their own life, many more people would do that because in some moment of being so distraught and upset, it might feel like that's the right decision and they might make it even though later they could regret it. I remember Kevin Hines, who I had on the show several years ago, who attempted suicide by jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge, thankfully survived, although he had many injuries. He, he said that as soon as he jumped, he regretted it. And, God, and think about how many people sadly have had that experience that they've initiated some act um, of suicide and then regretted it as soon as they started, but it was too late for them. So similarly, we can make really bad choices. And if we make the consequences of those choices even bigger, then we have to live with that. So if everyone had a nuclear bomb, at some point someone would set one off because they were just so angry. So I really strongly believe in the sense that power actually needs to be limited in all ways, political power, financial power. Um, anytime it gets concentrated too much in someone one person or small group's hands, it leads to bad things because they can then have too much influence and power over other people to hurt them. And so even this power or capacity to harm, to me, is just something that should be limited. It shouldn't just be this, no matter how much it is, it can be okay. Um, but, but coming back to this tragedy specifically, it's just so heartbreaking and, you know, talking to parents who have kids and just their experience imagining they drop their kids off to school every day, and there should be this sense of security in doing that, that it shouldn't feel like something risky. Um, and I might continue the discussion on these themes. People can, of course, call in about anything, but also if they want to join in on this conversation. Uh, but I just felt I could not avoid this topic, and it was important to talk about it. So we'll continue on this theme. Um, but again, open to people if they'd like to call in with, with questions. So let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi, uh, can you hear me right? Yes, can hear you quite fine. Thanks for calling. Right, I want to give my opinion about this this uh, the tragedy and uh, and the victims that uh, that the victim of the, the the gun ownership. I don't think this is a tragedy. I think this is a huge criminal act, which is orchestrated by the gun manufacturer, and it is never going to go away in the United States because of the Second Amendment. Second Amendment was designed at the time for a militia where there was no uh, law enforcement, there was no military, there was no, there is nobody was uh, enforcing the law. So they formed a militia, and that time they had a mascot. A mascot is the one lead at a time. Mm -hmm. It takes you about 45 seconds to load the one lead into your rifle. Mm -hmm. And then it takes about 45 seconds to aim and shoot, which most likely you're not going to hit anyone. 
that that is the Second Amendment. Second Amendment was not talking about the AR-15, which is the yeah. civilian version of M16, and you can spray the uh, air with the with the lead in matter of second and destroy anyone in front of you. So it has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. And and what we have to do is, I mean, people are born in the U.S. They should be given a birth certificate plus the mask. <laughs> That's it. The Second Amendment should be abolished. We should get rid of it, and nobody's held accountable. Gun manufacturers should be accountable. Gun sellers should be held accountable. And the owner, and also, anybody wants to have a gun, they should have insurance. For a car, we have insurance. For motorcycle, we have insurance in case we harm someone else. For, for gun, if you have to buy insurance, $1,000 a month. Hello? Yes, I can. No, I'm hearing you. I'm giving you. Want to give okay. you a chance to, to continue? If you charge people thousand dollars a year for their each uh, handgun or the rifle they have, or based on number of the, based on the size of the caliber. I think many people are gonna think twice before they fill up their garage or their safe with the twenty or thirty rifles or handgun and it, um, with the mass number of the bullet. During the last year of Trump uh, presidency. We are short on a bullet. Everybody's so paranoid, they they went and buy all the bullets and stash it. Yeah. Where we have a 911, when we have a police department, we have the SWAT, we have a secret service, all of that, they would show up. They, I do not know, I or I have not read anything in the newspaper that even one single case of the self-defense of somebody from themselves or their family, they saved their life by having the gun. All we have is a victim because gun manufacturer and a gun seller, their revenue is a $50 billion with B a year. And as long as we have these corrupted Democrats and the Republicans, which are supported by NRA, which over 90% of them supported by NRA, we are sadly going to see more of these uh, tragedies, more, more of these mass killings, and nobody's going to do anything. And that is very sad. Yeah. That shows the savagery of the American culture. That's why there is, a, there is a conflict in the world, what America do. They go and bomb the hell of that country. They occupy. They do whatever they want. These people, the American culture is a very savage culture. And they want to get everything with the blood and the bullet. That's why they're hanging over this uh, Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. And that is that's terrible. Yeah, well, I appreciate. should be abolished. Yeah, thank the you. Whole for, thing. I appreciate you sharing um, your perspective. I think most of what you said, I, I agree with a lot of um, what you're saying. Especially the the Second Amendment was, as you said, created. First of all, the weaponry was so so different. You can't even compare it to what it's like now. But also as a protection towards the government, uh, mostly that was really the goal of it. And um, right now. If you think you're going to have a gun and protect yourself from the American military, uh, you're, you're kidding yourself. So there's th that that aim or that goal, if that's what it is, is, is not at all uh, in harmony with what's going on now. And um, I, I agree with you, the profit motive and the money. And I, I wanted to actually later on talk about capitalism, which is an easy boogeyman, but really to me is something pivotal when we look at these issues. There's so many factors involved but it's also a big part of it that 
money comes before so many things or almost before anything. It has to make financial sense before something gets done. And in government, um, we know the corrupt influence of money. Uh, and this is one of the big issues where we see that corruption so so clearly and so strongly. Uh, I appreciate you you calling and, and passionately sharing your thoughts and input on, on this issue. Can I, can I add one more thing sure. about the Second Amendment and sure. this issue? Well, as far as I, I, as far as I know, which is based on it, reading a different books, the militia was uh, formed and armed in order to control the black slavery uh, for the owners, which they were white. And at that time, no blacks, since they were a slave, were allowed to have any, any kind of firearm, not firearm, they couldn't even carry the knife. If you go to the field, they would give them uh, the tools, then after come back from the field, they have to check it in. So the start of the Second Amendment was the militia, but that was the only law enforcement that exists at that time to control the black slaves and punish them for whatever they think they have done wrong. And that has become these, these taboo that now uh, you go to somebody's house in a prime neighborhood in Orange County with a best security, they have not they have a, 10 rifles, a handguns, and high level. one handgun is on the bathroom, the other handgun is somewhere else. They think, you know, people are going to charge them from every single window of their house, and it's a paranoia, and, and our children are getting killed, adults getting killed, and this is not a healthy society. This no. is a public health issue in America. Yeah. Ownership of the gun is a public health issue. Anyone who owned a gun and one of the gun, I think they got to go psychiatrist to see if they really need to have a gun. Well, well going back to what you mentioned about militia, I, I, um, I heard that more about police forces that first started about uh, policing slaves and things of that sort. But I don't want to get into historical debate because I, I don't have all the facts. But nonetheless, the, um, you know, Gun ownership is something that's going to be a long issue to solve in the United States, but I hope we move towards that. Uh, it's so much part of the culture that for many people, it's part of just their life. And of course, yes, there's things like hunting and other things. And in Sweden, for example, I know gun ownership is actually fairly high, but um, it's approached in a different way and dealt with in a different way. And there's also other cultural factors that can contribute to things like gun violence itself. So in Sweden, they have more guns, but don't have not more guns than us, but they have a lot of guns, but they don't have more gun violence. So it's a it's a complex issue. Uh, but I definitely think gun ownership, the more guns we have, it's not going to fix this problem, which is sometimes the solution that's thrown out there by people um, that if we have more guns, or if we arm everyone, that's going to make things safer. But I know that 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 won't be the result that if everyone is armed, we're just going to have more yeah. uh, catastrophes because people will, you know, use them when they shouldn't and and all sorts of things. And as I mentioned in the last uh, segment about suicide, but in general, having a firearm in the home is more likely to be used against someone in the home than someone outside or um, someone, you know. So, and, you know, you mentioned any case. I'm, there are cases, I'm sure, where people have protected themselves with a firearm. So to say it's never happened, I think would not be fair, but to say the overwhelming uh, or when we look at the statistics, it's more likely to cause harm than good. I think that's, from what I've seen, very clear. But again, I appreciate you you calling in and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, the, 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 the last note, the governor of Texas, the Abbott, uh, the first thing came out of his mouth yesterday, he announced that teachers should be armed. 
I think yeah. the next one, our kids should be armed. And we, we're turning every single household and the school into the war zone. I think going to Middle East and other parts of the world is not enough for American plotters. And we have to bring it at home. And that is, that is, this is a public, you know, in Sweden, you mentioned that they have a great public health issue. If people are sick, they have 18 years old, that sick doesn't know what he's doing, but he goes on the first day, become 18 by or 15, the guy that create that massacre in Texas. Sweden, they, they would take them to the to the psychologists. They, mm-hmm. they put them in the hospital. They monitor them. Yeah. We cannot just have, leave people the way they want to live and arm them to the teeth. And they say, well, this is, somebody said something 200 years ago. Therefore, it's like a Bible. We have to follow that. And yeah. that is, that is all political and, and, and financial motive behind it. It has nothing to do with your independence, has nothing to do with your protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to protect yourself, you have a knife, sword, or a baseball bat, I get a chance to run away. But with a gun, I don't get a chance to run away from someone going to attack me with a gun. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, the That's part you brought up about Sweden and um, other the social network or social uh, net that is there and supports, that's something that, as I mentioned, alluded to in the first segment, there's so many issues that are related to this. I think the gun is the most important and the easiest one to address, but in the United States, we have so many things that need to to be changed as far as how we take care of, of one another and take care of the most vulnerable and, and keep people um, in a healthier place and if they're needing help to get that help. and uh, you know, mental health is one of those things that almost always comes up in these shootings. And of course, for someone to take this kind of an action, they're not going to be mentally healthy or in a mentally healthy place when they do it. But of course, America doesn't have some kind of monopoly on mental health problems. Um, they exist in all countries in a, in pretty much the same prevalence rate. So if we have more mass shootings, it's not because of mental health uh, as the cause. It's uh, the guns are really the cause that makes the difference or the differentiating factor. The other things do matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at those things. And mental health is important, obviously, to me. Um, But, you know, the guns, I think, is a very simple place that we have to start. If we don't take action there, I think it's already embarrassing that we haven't. um, But it continues to be just, uh, as you said, criminal to not take action um, on this. But again, I appreciate your call. We're about to get to another commercial break. Thank you for your program and your dad program. I'm a, I'm a follower of your dad. Appreciate Thank you, you much calling for the great program you guys have. Thank you so Appreciate much for that. calling. Have a great day. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. So thank you to that caller for sharing their thoughts. If you have different thoughts, feel free to call in um, as well. I will likely continue the conversation on this theme, even some of the things that came up with that caller after the break. But you can call in 310441. 0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in the previous segment had a caller. He shared his thoughts on the issue related specifically to guns and the Second Amendment here in the United States. I uh, wanted to continue some, some thoughts that are relevant to this issue, but some thoughts about um, society, politics, things like that, that are more general that I've thought about before, but I thought could be relevant today and some of it I'll be um, sharing some ideas it's often not solutions but ideas and and things to think about food for thought so to speak um, that 
I just wanted to share. And one of them is related to politicians in general. And a notion that comes to my mind is that we need politicians to be poor or to not be wealthy, really. I say that way so it emphasizes the point. To me, that when we look at politics, one of the issues obviously is money and how that influences things. Of course, in America, it also takes so much money just to run an election that you need money to be reelected. So relevant to that is politicians should not be able to become so wealthy that if you want to become a politician, there should be a pretty moderate cap. So you can, of course, everyone should be taken care of and they can be okay, but they should not become incredibly wealthy, especially when they're in office. They shouldn't be able to make a lot of money. And definitely they should not be able to do things like trade stocks. I think it's so ridiculous when we talk about insider trading. If you're aware of new laws that are to come out, regulations or deregulations or whatever it might be, um, how could you then also be allowed to to buy stocks? How is that not almost by definition having insider knowledge about trading? Um, But we should be aware of how, who we are driving towards becoming politicians because some people say well if you don't pay enough you won't bring good people as far as like strong people just like certain jobs or careers if we don't pay them enough and then of course we look at things like teachers and sadly i I believe both of the adults were teachers that were killed uh, yesterday and and literally giving their lives Um, but we don't pay our teachers very well so we don't tend to follow some of that that logic Um, but actually i think you will not only still have good people go into politics, you'll have the right people go into politics. Because if you go into politics to make a lot of money and have power, that's not the people we want there. But that's what we have, primarily, not everyone, uh, is that people who want to have power. And any time we make power the part of a role, you're going to bring the worst people and also bring out the worst in those people, but you're going to bring the worst people towards that. If it's about power, hey, you know, if you have this position, you can tell people what to do and you can make people do this and do that. People are going to be drawn to that who will want it for the wrong reasons, not because I want to serve. Of course, every politician, when they're campaigning, talks about how they're a public servant and they want to help people. And again, I'm making generalizations and more about the overall structure and how things need to change. So there are people that are genuinely good people that are in politics for the right reasons. I truly believe that as well. But I think we draw bad people and we draw the worst out of people. That's why we have things like checks and balances in the United States, because if any person or any small group gets too much power, they're going to do bad things. It's just part of humans and human nature and how things go. If you have no consequences for what you do ever, you are likely to do worse and worse things. You're going to do worse and worse things. It's just how it's going to go. So we can't let anyone have too much power, too much of influence on things because they're going to abuse that whether they even want to or not even if they intend to or not they likely won't i even say this to parents that you have to be mindful it is the hardest job you can have the hardest role and biggest responsibility you can have but because you are in this position where you have so much power compared to your kids you have to be very mindful that you don't actually abuse that power because it's so easy to go into that that you can essentially do things without consequences You can make the rules, break the rules, 
and do whatever you want. And the child is, is essentially powerless. And so I recommend a mindset of you're a servant as a parent. You're serving your children. You use that power in service of taking care of them, loving them, raising them in the best way, not to make yourself feel good or to feed yourself in some way. And so in politics, we need to drive for the same thing. People should not have too much power, and we should have that balance in the political sense. They should not be able to make money while they're in office. Even after office, I think it should be capped in some ways because we see that they get involved in lobbies and essentially get on the other side of the corruption and, and do the same thing. So that's another aspect of it. And term limits, I think, is something um, we should be very uh, strongly promoting out there. We have two terms as the maximum for the president, but then things like Senate and House of Representatives, it's unlimited. And so we have people that are there for 30, 40, 50 years. And I think that's just going to breed corruption when people are in a system for so long, they start to become um, so entwined with the system that it doesn't create something good. Over time, it becomes more corrupt. And also, of course, it incentivizes things like corruption, because if I know you can be the politician there for 20 years making the laws, it's even smarter for me to give you more money or throw more money at you and to then have you be in power for so long. But of course, if people change, it does make it even a little bit harder to do that. Of course, it still can happen and would happen if we don't create other laws or uh, regulations about that, but it would make it more difficult. So to me, politicians in general should be given less power. And even the way we look at people, uh, I understand, you know, it's the president of the United States and we have a song and there's, you know, things or they come out and it has some type of a sense of this office and I understand there can be a level of respect or something like that but to me it's more about again that's the person that can serve the most that they are the best servant not the person we should praise and make a god and that goes back to a few things one is this sense of wanting security so we want to feel that whoever is in power is perfect and so strong and so good that all we have to do is give in to them and let them do whatever they want and we're going to be okay and we do this with teachers too gurus or people that are going to guide us okay they know everything perfectly so if i follow them i will live a good life and i know i'm doing a good thing and of course religion the same type of thing and principle um, is there as well and also with things like still existing royalty which i I still have a hard time understanding why um, we have there, there's a queen of England that has to somehow be treated in some type of way. She deserves respect, just like every other uh, human being. I don't know if what I'm saying right now gets me in trouble. I'm not sure how you're supposed to talk about the queen or not, which is itself, I think, part of the issue. But she deserves to be treated with respect and be taken care of. But I don't think she should be elevated as queen. I don't know what that means, that she's queen of England. Uh, and especially even now where it's more just by um, the pageantry of it. They don't have actually any political power or influence specifically. Uh, it's just a thing. It really is something strange, but it's the sense that they're somehow bestowed with some stature or status and we should praise them in a certain way, treat them a certain way, and they can have incredible wealth while other people suffer. And somehow it makes sense. No, because it's the queen. Of course, her and you know her sons and grandchildren should have all these jewels and billions and billions of dollars and or euros or pounds or whatever it is in wealth and that makes sense because they're 
the the queen and king and princes. I, I don't know. To me, that doesn't make sense. I can't justify that in a way that makes sense other than it's how we used to do it. But we used to do it wrong or we've advanced past that. There was always this way of justifying, and there still is, ways of justifying why we have huge inequalities. So if someone has 10 houses and many millions of people are homeless, it somehow makes sense. There's a reason. The more, the more common one we see, especially in the Western world in the United States, is what you can call a meritocracy. So if someone is wealthy, it's, well, it's because they, they worked hard. And if you're homeless, it's because you didn't work hard. That's it. End of story. When that is not at all uh, the end of the story. Of course, our efforts can have an impact on our results. That's uh, unmistakably true. But the reason why we have huge gaps in wealth is not an effort or a skill type of a uh, reasoning. That's not why we end up with that. And I've had the experience of working with many homeless families and seeing that that is not at all the case, that it's somehow about work ethic or skill level, or that if you're wealthy, it's just because you worked that hard to get there. And so to me, that's another unjustifiable thing that we have in this world, but also in this country is the incredible inequality that we experience. So maybe let me put a a bit of a bow on the political stuff uh, or the politics. Term limits, absolutely. And I think uh, a politician should be a uh, you know, I say it almost for alliteration when I say poor, but a politician should be not be a wealthy position. It should be a position you're taking care of. I also think there shouldn't be extremes in wealth anyway, but you shouldn't be have the opportunity to become very wealthy as a politician. You should have to live a fairly moderate life when it comes to wealth. You genuinely want to serve. You have good ideas, good principles that bring you there. And during that time, you won't be able to make a lot of wealth. And even after there could be some way of limiting because of the influence they maybe can have. And then also term limits to me is, is uh, really a no-brainer that we need to have term limits for our, our politicians for sure. But then coming back to this wealth and status and the reason the connection was there was when we look at politicians, as I said, that they're, you know, we look at them in certain reverence in some way. You know, thankfully, people tend not to like politicians. Uh, it's kind of what even when I say it, it's th- thought of as a dirty type of a occupation in a lot of ways. Not that I think that's good necessarily, especially it's not good because it's reflective of the corruption that exists in our political systems where people don't think they're doing things for the right reasons. We usually think there's a reason they're doing it. You know, even when we say being political in our social relationships, we mean that your intentions are not good and you're trying to work around that. But in politics, we think they're trying to serve their own interest in some way, but make it seem like they're benevolent and and wanting to help other people. And they only care about the good of people. That's why I'm doing this. It's not for any other reason. And so when you hear politicians who don't want to vote for any kind of gun restriction, they always will have some justification for why actually they care about the people the most, which is why they are not willing to even look at the issue uh, to see what, what can be done. And so I always have this strong sense that uh, we do better as a society when we move more towards equality or egalitarian type of a system. It doesn't mean everyone is exactly equal in everything they get. That's not even possible and probably not even good overall. But the extremes are the problem. And so one of the 
issues that comes up when we talk about something like equality is people say, well, we can't, the world is unfair. Things will be unfair. Or even when we talk about these tragedies, well, you won't prevent all of them or you wouldn't prevent all the lives that get killed even if you say, well, you only have knives or you only have this. People can still kill people. And that's always this slippery slope argument that people can use to say uh, we shouldn't help on an issue because it's too hard to figure it out or we can't solve it perfectly. And we're never and never have solved any problem perfectly. If you believe that, that unless we can solve it perfectly, it shouldn't exist, then you should be in favor of closing every hospital in the world. We're not going to save every life. We're not going to save everyone who gets sick. So why should we have hospitals? Why would you open another hospital? People will still die from illnesses. Why would you open a kid's hospital to help kids? Some kids are going to die. That's the same type of logic to me that's being used there, that because we can't prevent every tragedy or every death, uh, we shouldn't even work at preventing the ones we can or seeing what we can do. So when we talk about saving lives, we know we're not going to save all of them. I talked Monday about suicide. I acknowledge that likely would we make the number of suicides zero? Maybe someday, I hope so. Um, but even still, in the meantime, it might not get to zero, but any life we save is obviously worth saving. And let's see what we can do. So um, making things more fair to me, more balanced, is something very important. And I do actually want to share some thoughts probably in the next segment on capitalism. It came up with the previous caller talking about money and the corrupt influence of money. And, and, and I mentioned it, that it's an easy boogeyman, I know, to say capitalism is bad and, you know, we should have something else. But I want to talk about it in a more um, nuanced way or more detailed way and share some thoughts. And it's not that I have a solution. And so I know it's easy to complain about something and not have a solution. But I do want to share some thoughts because I think future generations much wiser than me and smarter than me and smarter than what we've been able to come up with will actually come up with better ways of doing things than we have and i just think it's good to share the ideas to to see what comes up kind of like brainstorming to see some of the values that might drive what type of progress we we can make or what can be something better than what we've imagined so far and, and really i barely have scratched the surface of it on on my own um, I'm thinking about these ideas. So what you'll hear is it will be slightly unformulated, but just I want to share some of the themes and see what comes up in that type of discussion or that type of thinking and see where we go from there. So let's go to a, a commercial break and you can join the conversation if you'd like. 310-441-0555. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this segment, I, I wanted to um, do something like a thought experiment and I'm going to kind of walk my way through it too because I have thought about this idea before um, but never formulated it as the way I will today so I guess um, kind of give me a little bit of space to see what happens there or, and we'll, we'll see what happens so um, I was mentioning that I wanted to look at capitalism which of course is it's an easy boogeyman it's not that I'm, I'm here to tell you it's all bad or it's been so bad but that I think that we uh, definitely can do better or should think of what can be better and, and think about the limitations of it and how we can create a better system. Um, you know, obviously it brings to mind things like socialism or other ways of looking at, at how we uh, spread wealth, property, those types of things. And I don't have a solution. I think for me, it's more about the values that drive it, that we um, 
first and foremost should reduce unnecessary suffering as much as possible, that no life should be lost from something that we can prevent, meaning that if we have food and someone is dying from lack of food, that that's the primary uh, driver rather than, well, you know, money and other things. But let me give the analogy or this thought experiment, and then it might actually relate to, to, to these types of issues. So um, we imagine there's some kind of... Uh, an alien invasion that we see is coming. And I don't love using alien invasion. I wanted to say asteroid, but I, I want to make it a little bit more complex because the reason why I don't like alien invasion, I, I'm a little bit anti-war to begin with, whether it's intercontinental, uh, international, or interplanetary, intergalactic. Um, I also think, you know, this is self, a way of a thought experiment, that for a some kind of beings or civilization, whatever it might be, to have the power to do space travel intergalactically uh, the way it would likely have to be for other life to find us, they would probably have to be fairly unified. And I don't think they necessarily would come here to, to, to kill us or to, you know, be our overlords or the things that we see in a lot of sci-fi and ways that it's been depicted before. Of course, it, it preys on some of our fears of the unknown, the xenophobia of different people and, and different groups. Also, it's more dramatic and makes for better, um, you know, movies or books and things like that. So I actually don't think if we were going to be approached by uh, alien life forms, they would be coming to harm us. But nonetheless, for the sake of the thought experiment, we find out somehow they send us a warning or we get a warning that they're coming. So we have this all hands on deck type of a... Uh, mindset. The whole world unites that we need every type of resource we can to protect the planet and protect humans. Uh, kind of reminds me there's that movie Independence Day, but something like that where we all need to band together. And so we need everything and we need all types of production. So all production type of resources start getting used. We need every type of, um, you know, professional you can think of from teachers to teach people certain things of course i'm a psychologist i'll find a space for myself to prepare people who need to fight and prepare the people we have psychologists and everyone getting consulted um, to do things i'm sure lawyers have to somehow get involved but everyone is getting involved so we need all these resources all at once and then so everyone is is uniting and figuring out ways to make this happen and then well someone can you know if we think about it in this thought experiment well how do we pay for all of this do we have enough money to pay all the, the, the workers and the materials and the psychologists and the lawyers and the whatever it is, the teachers? How do we pay for that? And so when I think about this myself and when I've posed part of it with other people, of course, the first thought is like, what are you talking about? Like, if we can do all this stuff, we'll do it. We're not going to run out of money to pay for everything to protect ourselves like what do you mean well either yeah we print money or whatever money won't even be the thing or people volunteer and so essentially the solution i think most people come to is that money won't get in the way of saving lives it, it doesn't make sense why would we even think of that i don't think anything oh we have this way of protecting ourselves from the aliens but it's going to cost too much so we're all going to die because we can't pay for it i don't think anyone thinks that that makes any sense and it's almost laughable, right? But if we think of the world we live in today, people die because we tell ourselves we don't have enough money to pay for them, to pay for things. We, we can't pay for the homeless situation. It costs too much. We can't pay to feed people in this place or 
take medicines in this place or that place. It costs too much. And so the people in power don't get killed. And so because of that, they're not going to really act on it. But for other people, their alien invasion is happening all the time. They're dying from things that are preventable, but are in a way being told because of lack of money, we can't take care of you. We can't protect you. And so to me, this system or this part of the system shows where capitalism falls flat, where there's something missing, where when the focus is just on capital and profits or things like GDP, well, GDP went up 4%, so it was a good year economically, or 6% or whatever is considered a good year. Um, okay, but if more people still starve to death, do we consider that still a good year, even though overall the wealth has increased and whatever wealth means, the ways we measure it with money in these this unit, I, to me, that doesn't mean we had a good year. It depends on how you're measuring um, these types of things. And so that's why when I think of it in that way, that again, if we thought of protecting all of us, and especially those who already have power, we don't think that money would be the limiting force. We saw some of that during the COVID crisis where, okay, we're going to, you know, you don't have to necessarily pay rent, the moratorium, there's lots of things that people put on pause because we didn't want people to die. And even there, partially it was because, well, if we try to make everyone keep working, more people in power also would die or more people who have wealth and they're not going to want that. So no, no one has to pay for things. Let's just make everything cool for a while and we still make it. So to me, it's very clear that there will be some solution better, much better than the one we have. And of course, anyone could say things will get better. I don't think anyone thinks that's it. But to think that somehow capitalism and the way we do things is like the ultimate end all be all, which is what you hear sometimes. Oh, this is the best, it's such an amazing, you know, I, I see people uh, talking about it on like, let's say YouTube and different debates. And they talk about capitalism, like just, you know, it's like they're the most beautiful thing ever. And I think it's it's a wonderful type of a, if you want to call it invention or system. So I'm, again, I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, that it's all been bad and that even actually any system we have will be nothing like this one. It might have some of those elements. But to me, if we can have more of what could be thought of as like a needs-based economy, meaning that the needs come first or the basic types of needs come first, that to me is somehow makes more sense than just capital or just making wealth in the ways that it's measured. And, you know, I was thinking about this, like, oh, that's so advanced. But if we look at even extant or existing hunter-gatherer societies, they often do function in this way, whether it's more needs-based. It's not just about private property and owning, that they balance things within their community in a sense that everyone gets taken care of. So in some ways, it would be going back to our roots where we have this in us um, to want to make sure everyone is okay when we, we can do so, that I think we'll find some way that, yes, I understand when you have a small system of 50 people, it could be a lot easier to have just a needs-based system than when you're dealing with billions of people and so many different factors that are involved. Of course, the world would likely have to evolve to a more peaceful type of a, a place and more unified in a lot of ways to make something like this work, but it possibly can work in smaller communities first. But I think it somehow will be finding a way that we can do it on a global scale that I am hopeful for, 
I'm not holding my breath that it's going to happen today or tomorrow, but I am hopeful that future generations will find some way or will move towards this type of a um, system that is more focused on needs than on accumulating capital and wealth in the ways that we are, that if we have more things, somehow it's better even if some people don't have anything, because to me that never has made sense. And related to that, you know, I've, I've shared this before that when we look at, um, you know, there's hoarding as a mental disorder or part of a mental health issue where someone doesn't throw things away, right? You go to their home and they have every newspaper in a room from 1983 till today in that room. And we're thinking, oh my God, this person is just, what's wrong with them? They have so many problems. So hoarding in general in that way is thinking of it as holding on to things you don't need or holding on to an excess of things, usually coming from anxiety of if I lose this, something happens or some kind of anxiety that tends to be attached to it. But when people have billions of dollars and they don't need that much money and they have an excess, we don't at all look at it negatively. We praise those people the most. Who's the wealthiest person? And we should look up to those people as heroes and almost gods that they actually do become. They're also at times the targets of hate, but usually anyone that's put into that stature also gets hate as well. They don't just get positive types of things. So we treat them like gods and it's so good that, oh, he, this person has $280 billion. Oh my, that's wonderful. Good, good for that person. Well, yes, I understand there's some things about wealth and it can be used in certain ways, but could we also look at it as that person is hoarding wealth? They have too much of this thing that they don't even need or use. And it's something they have that based on the system we have now, if it was some other people had that or it was used in other ways, people would be taken care of. People wouldn't die because of that. So to me, we can look at billionaires as money hoarders as well as having some mental disorder rather than praising a big, oh, this person has this hoarding issue. They hold on to money too much. They don't know how to let go of it. And they keep getting it and getting it and they don't realize they have enough and they keep wanting more. So rather than praising the person that they are doing so well, we can imagine a mindset that it's actually looked at negatively. Why do you have more? If you, uh, let's say you go to a party this weekend and there's food and they have, you know, for a hundred people, a hundred plates of food. If someone got 80 plates of food and took it to their table, you're like, wow, look at that smart guy over there. He got 80 of the plates. Smart. What a, what a great man. I wonder, how does he live his life? What does he do in the morning? How does he run his days that he was able to do that? You're like, what a, what a selfish person. What are they doing? Other people don't have food and you have too much. It doesn't make sense. Please put that back. We'd actually look at them as the worst person in the party. But somehow we don't have that same mindset when it comes to wealth. I know it's not exactly the same. There are things that people can do that actually can be good in creating wealth and using it in certain ways. But I'm just showing this as a different perspective to recognize the ways we make gods out of people where there could be something even unhealthy, especially even if you don't want to say unhealthy for that individual, unhealthy as a society when we have individuals that have so much, unnecessarily so much, while others don't. And we think the system makes sense or is good, or there's something good in that. I don't think that's true. So I say this not to specifically target any few individuals, but for us to just recognize this when we praise people or we think they're so great for doing something that might not be overall good for society. What does that mean about 
us and all of us to make that the goal, that if you have the most money, that's good. When we don't do that with other things, when you have the most of something. And, and this is one of the issues I have with um, economics in general, or some of the mindsets of economics, where it makes these the, the dollar sign the only metric that matters. More money is good. You know, even when people, they do uh, types of research, okay, well, would you take this bet if you're going to get, you know, $1,000 if you win, but you lose $800 if you lose and we flip a coin. And the quote unquote rational thing is always to take the option with the more expected value where you can make more money. But if risking the money has some significant impact on you and your family, then you can't just say, well, it's smarter to do the thing that can end up in more money. And the only metric is that. Or they do research where they you know, you split money between two people and people reject a unfair bargain, even if it means they don't get money. And they say that's irrational. Well, what does that mean? Yes, money wise, you're getting less, but emotions are also part of your experience. Your relationships are part of your experience. So many other parts, how you have to live with yourself based on what you do to get money or accept money is part of your experience. But often what's looked at is if it's more money, it's right. If it's less money, it's stupid. It's irrational. It's rational to always get more money. And I think that mindset is embedded in the way we think about money, that if you can get more of it, it's always the right thing to do, essentially, except for extremes, if it's illegal, if it's very immoral or unethical. But if it's not those things, it's always better to get more money than less. And I think that's an unfortunate type of mindset that comes along with capitalism and economics and the mindset of using a metric that's easy to, easy to measure, but isn't necessarily the most important thing. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble. So much greater minds than me will come up with ways of doing this on a global scale where we focus on needs first, where that will be the most important thing before just making money or having wealth or capital in the way that it's currently defined. And I'm hopeful for that to be sooner than later, even though, again, I'm not holding my breath that it's going to happen very soon because of how strong the systems are and the type of change I'm talking about, of course, would be huge types of revolutions. But I still am hopeful and excited, even if I, I guess I'll never see it, but just to imagine that. And I hope people will keep thinking and imagining and coming up with ways that that could be a reality. It's very possible there's some things out there that I haven't read or seen um, that actually propose things along these lines that if you know of them, please send them my way. I'll do my own research as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So uh, to start the show today and what really set off the themes that have come up was the tragic shooting that happened at the Texas school yesterday where 19 children were killed and two adults. And, you know, I, I think a lot of themes, the guns is one of the, to me, the most important one to look at. Um, but I also want to look at some other factors that are related, not to distract from what I think needs to be taken very quickly as uh, the gun legislation, things that can be passed, that itself is a huge issue that will take time to, I think, resolve in the United States, but I think action needs to be taken immediately that can be taken. Um, but I also think things like the culture of America play a part in this type of a, um, these types of shootings. 
to begin with, I, I think it's sad to even say, but I think shootings have become part of our culture in the sense of an action that can be taken in a certain circumstance. Um, kind of like, is it called harikari? I forgot what it's called, but when you would take your own life in Japanese culture of because you've caused some kind of dishonor or shame on your family, you would take your own life and it was actually considered a, a good thing to do that in a way. Um, very different in the sense of harming other people, but things become part of the collective conscious and unconscious. So I've mentioned that I think Jung is brilliant and obviously I could be very wrong about this, but to me the collective unconscious is not something that we have when we're born and it's just there and we all share it. I think it's more of a cultural unconscious that the things we get surrounded by and we, we see in our lives then become so embedded in us that they come to us automatically. We don't have to even think of them or we don't even recognize where they come from. So it's like this collective. So if you've been told, um, you know, so let's say shaking hands, even before you've you've done it, if you've seen it so many times, you naturally, when you see someone, might go to shake their hand because it just feels like, you know, the thing to do if you, said, say, live in the United States. And it's pre or post-COVID, let's say, uh, where we would shake hands. And so you could feel like it's so natural that it's it's part of our collective, something deeper than us. But I don't think it's that. I think it's because you've just seen it so many times, it becomes automatically embedded in that unconscious. And so, unfortunately, we've seen so many shootings in the United States that it in some ways can become a thing that people think of. It comes to some people's minds, especially in certain groups. Uh, and of course, um, almost exclusively, we've seen it in males, uh, as a way of dealing with a certain situation, often feeling insignificant, feeling angry towards society, things that we can all feel, but then this becomes a way of dealing with that or a way to escape from that. Do you feel insignificant well this will make you feel significant and a point to make there it's something to keep in mind in general is that construction is always harder than destruction so building something is always harder than ruining something it's easier to ruin something so someone could you know let's say put a bunch of legos together and it takes them minutes or hours to do it you can come knock it down in in two seconds and and you know that's it and it can also have a big effect, unfortunately, when you destroy and you can get a lot of attention for it, especially when it causes uh, some kind of big disturbance and then it becomes well known. And so we can all be aware of this, even, uh, you know, actually, in some ways, it's related to what I said before a couple of weeks ago about people who do pranks. They go in the streets and they bother people and then, you know, people laugh. And it's, very, it's a lot easier to do that than to genuinely help someone or do something meaningful. But you might get a lot of attention doing the destructive things. So we see that in a lot of ways that destruction is easier. Uh, um, a very sad one that comes to my mind is something like 9-11 where uh, the technology and then building those buildings took years. And then in a very few short hours, they were destroyed. So we can see that destruction is always going to be easier than construction or building something. I don't just mean construction in a sort, sense of buildings in any kind of way. And so when people are looking for a way to get attention, it can often be much easier to do something bad to get attention than to do something good. Even this is part of the class clown type of a, a mindset, which I don't think is always bad, but I mean this mindset is, well, I can't 
come up with the right answers or good answers to get attention in that way. But if I make fun of the teacher or make a joke, I'll get some attention. So at least I get seen in some way. So as a response to the feelings of insignificance that we all can have and we all fear, unfortunately, destruction and hurting in some way can seem like an easier way to get attention and as an escape from that insignificance, unfortunately. And so that's something that we want to instill in our children and in general in cultures that we want to not give attention to those who cause harm or give them the type of notoriety they want, which again is why I think we should not put on the news uh, the names and faces of people who cause great harm in a much more minor way. If you watch sporting events before, if someone ran onto the field, you know, a streaker or just ran onto the field, they would put the camera on them and show them. And now you'll see that the camera doesn't show them so as to not reinforce that you'll be as famous. You still get attention and it still might get posted, obviously, on social media where people get a video of it, but they won't show it on the national and international scene. And so how we bring attention to people is something we have to be aware of uh, when we make someone famous for even doing something bad we we make it a lot easier for people to get notoriety and encourage that that's a way to be no longer be nameless and to no longer be not seen and so that's a lot of what i think we're seeing when we see these young men who take these actions there's this fear of being not strong not capable not competent not being seen not being powerful and so they turn to this destructive aggressive violent act and let me make it quite clear, anything I'm saying in this regard in no way justifies, condones, even obviously fully explains, but condones or makes it okay. It's just in a sense of trying to understand how we get to these horrible places so we can prevent them in the future. So I'm not in any way saying, oh, it makes sense to do this. I'm saying look at how people might respond to certain things they go through that are incredibly unhealthy and harmful and never okay. But we always want to try to to understand them, just like people have written books on the Holocaust and on Hitler and what has happened. And some people say we shouldn't even study it at all because he was just this one-off evil creature. And yes, I think he was evil in what he did, but I don't think it's one-off. Others have actually done similar. Again, you could compare in different ways, but it can happen again. And that's why we want to, to study it and try to understand it, not just say because he was so evil. Uh, you know, and he was just this one-off person. We don't have to even study him. Um, in some ways, that would glorify him in a different way. He looked at himself as some kind of messiah, that he was like a god, a positive thing, but making the devil to me is, uh, in, in a similar way, giving him too much credit. Yes, he was a horrible person, but still a person, and we want to understand how other factors played into it, not just him, because we can end up there again, and we haven't in different ways. So when we see these mass shootings, as I said, we shouldn't promote the individual, but people should study them to try to understand how did we get here. And not just the individual and their psychology, of course that, but also the factors that affected them, um, that impacted what happened. And that's some of what I'm doing here is looking at what I think are some cultural issues relevant to these types of um, shootings and violence when it takes place. This sense that I am not being seen by society and it's unfair. And you see a movement in this regard. There's um, the incels, the involuntary celibate individuals. And so there's the sense that the world is unfair to me, the ways that people get praise or men get women and I'm not getting women is somehow unfair. And it creates this anger 
towards the world that I'm deserving of something that I'm not getting. And so then because it's so unfair, eventually, you know, taking action might even make sense or might be the, it might be justifiable in some way. And related to that, actually, I want to, it might feel like changing gears a lot, but looking at parents and how they deal with their children. I'm very much in favor of making your children feel comfortable in the sense of being taken care of, that their needs do get met, definitely. As I mentioned, though, not necessarily comfortable, meaning that whatever feels good to them, we do, and whatever feels bad to them, we avoid, because if we want anyone to grow, and especially our children, we need to allow them, encourage them to face discomforts, the pain that leads to growth, and of course, avoid the pain that leads to damage. But that means we have to allow them to face discomforts. So let's say they have to do their homework and you could write a note so they don't have to do their homework. That's actually not loving them. That's hurting them by not allowing them to face the challenge and the genuine consequences of their life and try to give them a temporary comfort. And similarly, as much as we want to make them feel and not just feel, but show them that their needs will get met, that they can you know, have things that they want, something that parents at times do is they have this bias so strongly towards their kids that whatever you want matters the most. So if you want something, it doesn't matter what else other people want. That's the most important and almost the only thing in that moment. And at times I've had parents ask me, well, how can I teach my kids to be more empathic? And it's not going to be just from some lectures that you sit them down and say, everyone matters and you should care about people and people you know, have feelings too. Yes, some of those might come up here and there, but more important is going to be the hundreds and thousands of interactions you have with them and they have with others and how you respond to them. That just because you want something, it doesn't mean other people have to necessarily care about that, especially if it's a want. If it's a need, that could be different. If you are really thirsty and in pain or hurt, yes, that's so important. But if you say, I want things to be this way or I'd like this, doesn't mean other people have to necessarily care or jump to that. And even we have to be aware of how we jump to that. As a parent, yes, giving your children what they want is important, but to limits. I think sometimes parents go too far in thinking that if my kid wants anything, they should never have to be said no. No one should say no, especially me. Okay, he wants that toy, let's go get it. She wants that thing, let's go buy that immediately or give it to them this moment. I don't want them ever to be told no or not get what they want. Often this comes from our own experience growing up, feeling deprived in certain ways where we wanted something and didn't get it. Or let's say, often I hear it from people who grew up in poverty and now they're not in poverty. They don't want their kids to ever not get the toy they wanted because they remember wanting the toys and never getting any of them. And we always have to be mindful that one extreme being bad doesn't mean that the opposite extreme is healthy. So if you didn't get any toys, doesn't mean your child getting every toy in the world every moment is actually the healthy thing them having the appropriate toys in appropriate ways is good, but the other extreme is not healthy for them. So often when parents can feel their own sense of being deprived as a child, when they have their own children, they can react the opposite way and say, I never want my child to ever feel anything that could feel like deprivation. Even they want something, get it. You have two, get three. And this can actually lead to a sense of entitlement that the world is going to owe me. And that's very different from the world will have enough for me, which I think is actually good to show your children that there's actually enough for you and there will be enough for others as well, but different than the world owes you 
for it to be the way that you want it to be. And I sense that a lot in American culture. I mentioned before, we don't really think of it as a free country. We think of it really more a me country. Because if you think it's a free country, it means you have rights and everyone else has rights. So it's not just what you want to do every moment. Because if you have rights and others do, they have rights as well. So you are somewhere and you want something, but others want something too. So it's democratic, let's say, and you figure out based on voting or some type of process, how do we find the best thing for everyone? But not just, well, I want this, so it should be that way because it's a free country. No, it's it's free, yes. But again, there's other people and they have wants and needs and their own rights, and we have to find a way of balancing all of them. But I think the entitled mindset that if I want something, it should be that way is very strong in this country and it's very unhealthy. Teaching your children that what they want is very important. What they need is very, very important, especially, again, if it's a need and something that leads to either pain or suffering if they don't have it. But even what they want, you're going to pay attention to it. But not that whatever they want happens instantly. That's not a good recipe for how they're going to then interact with the world and how they're going to actually experience the world because the world is going to let them down. The world is not going to give them what they want every time. But unfortunately, what I see is that this sense of if it's not the way I want, something is wrong with the world leads to lots of things. Of course, in the extreme is what I'm talking about today, the sense of, well, then I can take it out on other people because I should have gotten what I want. And so whatever I do, hurting, killing can be okay because I wanted this thing and it's unfair that I didn't get what I want. It's actually important to teach our children that the world is based on causes and effects, that when you do things, you will get some results, not just because you want it, but okay, you wanted something, let's see what we can do to get it. You wanted something, let's see what you actually might have done to lose it. Okay, you wanted that, but you took some actions that it might make sense that you don't get that thing anymore, at least for a while, let's say temporarily, or something happens. So it's not a sense of punishing to punish, but of showing consequences. And so showing our children that what they want matters, but is not the only thing that matters, is actually something very important, especially as they start to get older. As young children, it's harder to tolerate not having, and so we're mindful of that. But as they get older, being very aware that we can show them that what they want matters, but what others want matters as well. And we have to show that both with them, but also through our actions. Your children will pay attention to how you deal with other people. Are you only focused on you? Or do you take other people into mind and into account? It'd be a very, very important message to teach your kids. I'm looking at the time. We, we got to go to a commercial break, but I'll probably continue on these themes after. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And so in this last segment, continuing on the themes from, from earlier um, about some aspects of American culture, I was just talking about an, another one that is there and obviously undeniable in this kind of a case is, is violence or aggression as a way of getting what you want or doing something. Um, the book actually I'm reading this week, it just happened, obviously I picked it before these tragedies happened, uh, is Why We Fight by Christopher Blattman, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Uh, and he talks about how, although when you look at history, of course, the wars are often reported in a big part of history books and history when we read about it, but more often than not, or much more often are the cases where long time or long uh, standing feuds don't end in physical war and violence. And so trying to understand that. 
and I'm only about 20 pages in, so I can't speak much about that other than what I've, I've read so far, but just um, looking forward to reading what he has to say based on looking at history and how we tend not to actually be violent with each other because there is always these battles of trying to understand is human nature violent or not violent? Is it, are we good or are we bad? And, and things like that. And I think we have the capacity for all sorts of things. We obviously have the capacities for uh, aggression and violence um, that can come out depending on the situation, of course, depending on individuals as well, but also depending on the culture, how uh, accepted, acceptable, expected is it to go to that place. And I think, unfortunately, what we see in the United States is that violence, aggression has often been uh, our way of diplomacy oftentimes if i have a bigger gun than you then i can um, be the one that makes the decisions or has the power and we see that has often been used in how we deal with foreign powers and also internally as well and i think this has has an impact and so it relates to what i was saying in the last segment that this tendency or notion that what i want i should get um then it could also lead to well if someone is in the way of me getting what i want I should turn to anger and aggression because anger itself, we can look at it as a feeling that relates to being something wronged. You know, we're being wronged in some way or someone's in our way to get to something we want or need. It could turn or lead to anger. That's the response. And so that's something that if I think I should get what I want, I'm more likely to go to anger. Anger in that sense is a response to our expectations not being met. If you go to a restaurant, you get angry if it takes too long, right? If the food doesn't come out for two hours, you might get angry. If it comes out in 10 minutes, you won't get angry because your expectation is 10 minutes is right or 10 minutes is fair or 10 minutes is expected. If it's much longer than that, then you might get angry. So we can understand our anger. Uh, this is even related to when people say, go to anger management or control your anger. It often isn't about when you get angry now, what do you do? That can be definitely part of it. But actually, when we get to certain points of anger, it can be hard for any of us to control ourselves. It's actually more important to recognize what's making us angry and can we approach that differently. If we don't have that expectation um, or have expectations on so many things, we actually might get angry less. Less things will make us angry. So. Uh, as I've also talked about, anger is not itself a bad emotion. We need it, but we can be aware of what's making us angry, how often we get angry, and how much we're getting angered by certain things, and it can be very much related to our expectations of things. And so again, if our expectation is, well, I want this, if I don't get it, I have a right to be angry, and that's not true almost all the time. You can want something understandable, and it might make you frustrated, and even it could make you angry internally, but does that mean you're allowed to act on it? No that I can go do something to someone else because I'm not getting something that I want. But I think, unfortunately, we do see that in our culture, in the American culture, it becomes more prominent. So it's part of our human experience and human background and human responses. But how much do we promote certain types of reactions? It could be that anytime someone wrongs you, you're allowed to punch them. You could have a culture like that where that's well, someone did something you don't like, you're allowed to punch them anytime. Well, that can happen, but then that means violence becomes one of our primary modes of dealing with differences. And if we want to live in any kind of society where we have 
many people with many different wants and needs and uh, timings of things where we want to do things and all of that, well, then we have to be ready that conflict is a part of life. Conflict is a part of even our internal life. We have internal struggles. But then conflict is a part of any interpersonal relationship too. Any relationship has conflict. And the closer the relationship, the more conflicts are going to come up because you spend more time together, because your emotions are more invested and involved. And so more things will come up that will lead to conflict. This is why if you're in a romantic relationship, you should expect conflict. And when I say conflict, I don't mean it has to be ugly. That's what I'm going to get into. But that disagreements will come up. Things will happen that you don't like. Your partner does or doesn't do something that makes you upset or says or doesn't say something that makes you feel bad. And so that leads to conflict and disagreement. So going back to this expectation mindset, we have to expect conflicts arise. And also that's a good thing to keep in mind that whoever you're with, you're going to have a certain set of conflicts or issues with them. So I just think, oh, I have this problem with my husband or my wife. I you know, wish I was with someone else. Well, if you're with someone else, you might not have that problem, but you would have some other problem because any two people are going to have a set of problems, not even just one, but a set of problems that comes along with just the differences you have and how you rub up against each other in a certain way that will cause certain issues. That's just part of it. So we have to expect and accept conflict in our relationships, whether we're talking about uh, individuals or in larger scale, but it's now how are we going to deal with it? So again, if our first reaction is, well, I want this, it doesn't matter what you want, that's a problem. And so this relates to that expectation, it relates to empathy, it relates to um, having respect for yourself, but of the other as well. All things we want to make sure we're instilling in our children. So again, it's not just what you want. Uh, even, you know, your children have a conflict with a kid at school and often the reaction is, okay, well, that kid was wrong and whatever you did was right and let's go, you know, full force, uh, do something about it. So on one level, yes, it's good to have your kids back, but there's also space to have their back be supportive, be empathic of them, but also use these as opportunities to help them recognize the other person in that equation. Okay, well, let's try to understand what that person felt and you know, uh, what do you think you did also that could be different? First, empathize and show that you're with them. And if they're having big feelings, deal with that. But once they've calmed down, let's talk about what happened and see if we can understand the other person's perspective or what you think you can do to help make the conflict um, be resolved. Not just let's make the person go away. Let's help the conflict go away. And even put in those terms, the person go away. Sometimes that means we switch classes or do things. But this is also the sense of make the group go away or the person go away by killing them. That also becomes another solution when that's thought of as a solution. I don't like you or we have a conflict. You should be gone in whatever way that means. So in our interpersonal relationships, of course, you're going to have conflicts come up. But unfortunately, people do turn to violence. We do have of domestic violence is a very real and serious issue that people with their loved ones think that it's okay to go to that place. If I don't like what you're doing, I'm allowed to physically harm you, to control you, or to get you to do what I want, which of course is not okay and not healthy at all. So it begins with our relationships, recognizing that when we talk about diplomacy with countries, it also begins in our relationships of do we have diplomatic conversations together? Okay, we have a disagreement, we have a problem. Let's talk about it first. And all the levels of avoiding violence that are there for us to 
make sure we go there first and then any kind of anger or violence is an absolute last one in some cases not even on the table if we're talking about a disagreement between two people it should never get to that point no matter what but even in bigger issues that we don't have that as uh, a first line of of uh, action i want to say defense um, but you know that sounds almost like military in a way too but it's not the first place we go to but unfortunately we see that and i do think we see that a lot in the american culture this mindset that when someone doesn't you know you don't like someone just get them out of your way and when you look at the way we deal with other countries that tends to be the mindset well we're having some issue we can bomb that place or how do we kill the people that are creating problems i've always seen this in the the reaction to 9-11 of course something horrible happened but this mindset that well if we kill all of our enemies then we'll have peace and you're not going to kill your way to peace it doesn't happen yes there are bad actors and sometimes you have to do certain things or detain or whatever it might not be but the mindset that if i kill all my enemies then i'll be secure doesn't work because you of course will not kill all of them whatever that means but then also you'll create more in the process of having violence as your mode of action and that's actually what we've seen as well so we could think that we'll be safe once we kill everyone that doesn't like us but we soon will realize that's not possible you can't kill to peace we have to go through the more diplomatic means through other ways of of doing things to get there and yes of course there can be times where again it could be the last line and self-defense is a real thing whether it's individual or collective but more often than not we find solutions that are peaceful not just because we don't want to kill the other people but it is better for us as well violence rarely tends to protect us uh, it tends to put us more in harm's way put us more in risk so as i conclude today um the the impetus the motivation for all the topics that came up was the tragic shooting yesterday at the school in texas of course, as, as it goes beyond without saying that thoughts, prayers are with those individuals. But as I said, we don't want it to be just about that action has to take place. I hope you will do whatever you can reaching out to politicians to put pressure on them, putting, you know, I know about social media. It's not that that's going to solve anything, but we have to make sure voices are heard both in how you vote, but also how you spread your, your words and whatever you say so that people know how you feel about these issues and not doing it in a self-righteous way or virtue signaling, but actually because we are upset, we want to see some change. So um, I'm heartbroken and hope to not have to report on anything like that again, but I know it won't stop happening unless we make things change. All right, that's the end of today's show. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.